I realized, as soon as I began to prepare for this, that this miracle story, this account of a miracle of Jesus and Peter and the miracle, the miraculous catch of fish, is a, a bookend because there is another absolutely parable, pa, par, pardon me, parallel miracle in John 21. So I'm going to read, let's read together this account in Luke 5. And I'm then going to turn and read the second account as well because you can't understand the one without the other. And we want to find out what God has to tell us from this passage for our own lives. So let's first read Luke 5, 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let, us, and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Because you say so. It's the only reason he had. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, and they were so full they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away. (laughs) Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now let me read you the parallel passage. Uh, it's, in, it's in, pardon me, it's in uh, John chapter 21. And it's not... When I say parallel, I don't mean it's another account of the same incident. It's another incident at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. Listen. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment about him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, only a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. This is God's word. What do we learn from this two-part miracle? Jesus did this miracle twice. What do we learn? You know, on the surface of it, 
there's a lot of things to think about. On the surface of it, there's an awful lot to think about it. Uh, one of the things that's so remarkable is the details. My dear friends, I don't know, every so often we get to say this. It's just a tangent, but let's say it. These are not legends. You don't write legends like this. It tells us Simon Peter, when they were in, in John 21, it says they were only about 100 yards from the boat. It tells us that when Simon Peter saw Jesus and ran to the boat, he tied his outer garment around him. It tells us that when they brought in the fish, there was 153 useless details. They don't bring forth the plot. They don't add anything to the legend at all, at least the way legends were written back then, okay? Why did they mention 153? Why did they mention 100 yards from shore? Why did they mention that he tied his garment around before he jumped out of the boat? Why did they mention the details? Because they remembered them. <laughs> These aren't legends. You see, they're not written like legends. All these little details, they're eyewitness accounts. Something else that immediately grabs you when you read through it, and that is that place that I stopped when we read through Luke 5. Look, Simon says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. You know, children, especially adolescent children, when you say, you must do this, they say, why? In other words, it's really not enough that you just told them <laughs> You know, they want to know what the reason is. Uh, there's, you know, that's a, a little irritating for a parent to hear, admittedly. Uh, on the other hand, we make mistakes. We're fallible human beings. You know, we have blown it in the past. You know, we have done things wrong. It's not uh, completely wrong for a child, an adolescent, to say, okay, give me the reasons why you're doing this. But, you know, here's Simon Peter, and he has absolutely no reason to do this. He has absolutely no reason to put out into deep water and to let down the nets. No reason at all. Not a bit of evidence for it. No, no reason. But what does he say? The only reason he's got is because you say so. The Bible tells us that's enough of a reason to do something. Lord Jesus, I've got no reason to do this. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't seem practical. I've tried it before, or it, it doesn't seem to work. Everybody says it's not going to work. Because you say so. If you do things just because, do you do things just because Jesus says so? Or do you say, I've got to have a reason. Here's what Jesus says to do. And then I've got my own understanding. Is it practical? Will it bring forth my agenda? Will it help me? You see, if you ever say to something Jesus says in his word, I don't want to do that. That's not practical. It probably means you've never actually obeyed him, but rather you've only allowed yourself to be advised by him. In other words, when people, I've had people tell me, you know, I've been, I, I've basically been a Christian all my life, uh, and uh, I really try to do whatever Jesus says. But, you know, I, I'm a human being, and of course I do that, and everybody does that, but, uh, and I know what the Bible says, but, you know, uh, you know, I'm a human being. I can't help that. Now, what they mean is I've taken Jesus' advice, to obey means to do something just because you say so. And it means that if you ever deviate from anything he says, it probably shows that all the other times you think you're obeying him, you're actually just taking his advice. And you're doing it because it looks like it makes sense. It looks like it's practical. It looks like it'll fit your goals. This tells you what it really means to be obedient. And you know the blessing doesn't come sometimes until we finally do something just because you said so. 
None of these things are the main point <laughs> of the text. None of these things are the main thing that the miracle is designed to teach. What's the main thing that the miracle is designed to teach? Well, what's so striking that Jesus does these miracles twice, and it's the, so much about it's the same. Number one, it's the same problem. They've been fishing and they can't find anything. Number two, it's the same original, uh, the, the, the same uh, response by Jesus. Jesus says, do something at my word, you see. In the beginning, he says, put out in the deep water and let down your nets. At my word, do it just because I say so. In John 21, the second time, he does the same thing. He says, just throw it on the other side. That doesn't make any sense. Just throw it on the other side. We've been out here all night, been throwing it every single place. Just throw it over there. He's, he's on the shore. They're 100 yards off. How the heck does he know, right? See, there's no good reason to obey unless it's Jesus. So the other thing that's the same, they have the same problem in both situations, and they have the same direction. Jesus says, obey me just because I say so, just because it's me. And the third thing we see is the same miracle happens. There's an incredible, miraculous catch of fish. And actually, the fourth thing that's the same is in both cases, Simon Peter has a, has a very strong reaction. And Simon Peter, in both cases, it has nothing to do with the fish. You know, in neither case does Simon Peter say, this is great, look at all these fish. G Peter always knows that the point of the miracle is not the fish, but it's to teach us about Jesus. So those are all the things that are the same, but what's the difference? It's so striking. Peter responds in totally opposite way. In the first, he says, go away. Get away from me. <laughs> I want nothing to do with you. You know, I think probably he would have, you know, if they weren't on a boat, he probably would have run. But remember, they were out in deep water. They weren't in just 100 yards from shore. In Luke 5, the miracle's done in deep water. That's the only reason why Peter doesn't jump out of the boat in this miracle too, but he wouldn't be jumping out of the boat for the same reason he'd be jumping out of the boat to get away, as far away as he possibly could. But in John 21, he's like a crazy man. He jumps out of the boat before he even gets in to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can. What's going on here? Same problem, same miracle, same response, same direction, same point. Two totally different reactions. What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us two things. It teaches us, first of all, about the holiness of Jesus Christ. And then it teaches us, secondly, what it really means to be a Christian. What it really means to be a Christian. Look, first of all, what it teaches us about the holiness of Jesus Christ. In both cases, Jesus is showing forth the fact that he is a person of awesomeness, a person of unbelievable knowledge, unbelievable power, unbelievable control over nature, absolute sovereignty, and so on. Uh, now, in other words, in both cases, Jesus shows forth his superlativeness. Now, in Luke 5, we see the normal human response to superlativeness. Luke 5 teaches us something that the Bible teaches us, and that is to get near God is a very, very unpleasant experience. This flies right in the face of popular common sense. If you go into any Hallmark store and look at the cards, and you go to the religious section. Now, the religious section tends to be 
for people who, uh, I guess the marketers say there's religious types in this country still. Uh, you know, mainly not us smart people who, you know, not most of not us artists and people who live in Manhattan, but there's people who live in Queens, Brooklyn, and the rest of the world who are seen to be very religious. Um, and so we need to have Hallmark cards for them, you know. So they make them. And some of them say things on the top like, uh, near to God. If you find any card, it might be an Easter card or a Christmas card, it might be a uh, you know, a wedding card. It might be, you know, cards for various occasions for religious people. Very often they'll say something on the, on the top, and if you ever see the terms near for God on it, near to God, near to God, I can tell you what the card's going to look like. First of all, it'll be pastel. Secondly, there'll be a, a stained glass window with a sort of sunbeam coming through, you know, coming down. Uh, it'll probably have... Um, this. Well, man, better, better manicured, of course, just like this, you know. Uh, you know, and, and what, you, what you're supposed to get out of the card and out of the very concept of nearness to God is warm, toasty, and very goopy feelings. Because to be near to God, near to God, is in popular parlance a feeling of being very, very uh, toasty, sort of near, near a, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. See what the Bible tells us. We see that anybody who actually gets near to God finds that they are in deep trouble. Anybody who gets near to God, the real God, that's the point, the biblical God, falls into a tremendous, um, a dire situation. There's pain, there's sometimes there's wounding, there's hurt. Listen, look at Jacob. If you go back to J uh, Genesis 35, one of these days I'm going to preach on this, this chapter when I finally figure it all out. <laughs> uh, but one of these days I'm going to preach on it. But here's Jacob, and in Genesis 35, he is at, the, at, a, at a crisis time in his life. He's all by himself. He's trying to go back to face his brother Esau that he'd wronged years before. And as he's praying, a man jumps him in the dark. And he wrestles with Jacob. And this man has got tremendous power, and J Jacob wrestles for hours. Jacob is a great person himself. He's a great, uh, you know, uh, uh, and strong man himself, but he, he can't overcome this man. And the day begins to dawn. And the, and the wrestler says to him, I've got to go. <laughs> and Jacob is starting to figure out that this is not just a man. And he says, I'm not going to let you go. And the power of this figure is so great because he shows the power. He has not been putting forth his power on Jacob. He's just been playing with Jacob. And he reaches out and touches his hip and absolutely destroys it, shatters it, puts it out of joint. Jacob never walks right again. All he does is touch it. And Jacob is in absolute agony. And Jacob realizes it's the Lord. And the reason the Lord had to leave before the sun came up was because for Jacob to see his face would be for him to die. And Jacob was amazed, and when it was all gone, he called the place Peniel, and the name Peniel means the face of God. And, it's, and if you read the chapter, you'll see Jacob called it the face of God because he said, I saw the face of God and lived, which wasn't exactly true, by the way. He only came close to seeing the face of God and he was permanently wounded and he felt like he got away with murder. I came that close. I was in the presence of God and all I did was get permanently disabled. He thought he'd come out pretty well. Everybody, look at Job. He gets near God. 
And he actually has an experience of the presence of God. He says, I despise myself in dust and ashes. Isaiah, the prophet, a prophet, gets near God in Isaiah 6. When he actually sees God, he falls down and says, I feel like I'm coming apart. Psychologically, he is absolutely destroyed. What's going on here? It's not that hard to understand. We always have this kind of experience in the presence of superlativeness. Rudolf Otto, a guy who tried to do scientific study of religion in the early part of the century, wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, and he noticed, not just in the Bible, but in all religions, even the most primitive ones, whenever somebody got into the presence, drew near to the presence of the supreme being, the supreme deity, they always experienced something that, uh, that Otto called numinous awe. Numinous awe. And he described numinous awe in a way that's perfect. Oh, it's, it's very helpful and quite biblical. He says, he says, numinous awe is a traumatic experience of being ripped apart by completely opposing strong, passionate responses to the holy. And he says, on the one hand, when you come near the holy, you're fascinated, you're attracted. You can't get away from it. You go after it. You want to see it. You want to see more of it. And at the very same time, you're frightened to death. You're hurt. You're in pain. You're scared. How could that be? That is the experience of the holy that Rudolf Otto, not a Christian, a man with a very anti-supernatural bias, saw when he just studied religion. He says, you're ripped apart. Now, by the way, you can see that even in human superlativeness, can't you? I was reading a study a couple years ago that super competent people in large organizations very often do not do well. They've got to get out and start their own businesses. They've got to get out and start their own. You know why? They threaten their superiors. They don't get promoted. They don't get good jobs. They have to, bite. They have to burst out. And yet, have you ever noticed, uh, have you ever had a friend or have you ever watched how people relate to somebody who's unbelievably smart unbelievably talented, unbelievably attractive. What is it? It's kind of a love-hate relationship with them, right? On the one hand, you really like being around. You like that this person's my friend. You kind of want to be, and yet you hate them. What is that? At a very tiny level, it's numinous awe. And it only makes sense that with God, if there is a God, that he would be the superlative of the superlatives. What Rudolf Otto says, you're attracted and you're repulsed. You're fascinated and you're frightened. You know why? It's, it's just two sides of the same reason. You know you're not holy. You know you're not superlative. You know, the reason you're both attracted to someone who's a lot prettier than you, or at the same time, at the same time you kind of hate the person, is you're attracted because you know you're not, and you like being around them, and you sense your lack, and you sort of want to be there. You, you know you're not as smart. You know you're not as talented, and therefore you like to be around someone who's that talented. You're affirmed by their respect and their interest out of your sense of lack, but at the same time, out of the same sense of lack, you're also threatened because they expose you. They show you up. You know, Salieri getting near Mozart, he hated him. He showed him up to be the mediocrity that he was. Anybody who gets near the real Jesus, anybody who gets near the real God, there's a fascination. You know, Moses saying, Lord, I want... I want to see you. I want to be near you. I want to be in with you. And God's saying, I, I'll kill you. You see, if you, there's that numinous awe. I want it, but I'm scared to death of it. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. 
That's the problem of the human condition. We can't live with God. We can't live without God. We are attracted in all sorts of ways, and yet at the same time we get near the real God, we're repulsed. We say, I can't believe in a God like that. I hate the whole idea of a holy God, a wrathful God, a just God, a God who is a judge. Intellectually, emotionally, we can't stand it. On the other hand, we feel this spiritual emptiness. Look at some of you. Don't you remember how much you've hated in the past? You've mocked intellectually the very idea of the God of the Bible. I've rejected the whole idea of a God who sends people to hell, a God who is perfect, a God who is holy, the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. You hate that. Why? It exposes you. And you still may hate it, and yet you're, you know, as, as the years go on, you realize, I need something, I need something, I need him, I need him. I don't believe in him. At least I don't want that kind of God, but I want some kind of God. What is it? Go away from me. <laughs> when you get near the real God, you say, go away, and yet you want to be with him. Now, let me, let me apply this quickly before we go to the last point. The first thing we're taught here is if you get near the real God, you will experience this, this, this conflict. So I'm, first of all, I'm going to say to some of you who are thinking about Christianity, do you have this, put it this way, this is a great test of whether your religion has the air of reality to it. If you have a view of God that says, you know, I feel very close to God when I'm just out on a lake in a boat. I don't need to come to church. I don't need to read the Bible. I just feel near to God when I'm with people, when, I, when I'm helping people. That's when I feel near to God. If when you get near to your God, there's no conflict, there's no trauma, it's not the real God. It makes, listen, if you see how we react to superlative human beings, it only makes sense that there's a God at all. Your reaction to the, the, the God himself, the, the superlative of the superlatives, would be even greater. How in the world could you have a real God if when you think about this God, it never caused, when you draw near to this God, there's no conflict? My friends, when you get near the real God, God is like a storm on the lake. It always stirs up the junk from the bottom. When you get near God, there's conflict, there's trauma. It stirs up gunk out of the bottom of your heart. You see yourself for who you are. You wrestle. When I see people who come to Redeemer and they're coming to classes and they're wrestling and they're upset and they're maybe mad at something I said, I say, hmm, this is good. At least this person's on the track of the real God. When somebody says, oh, you know, religion, the Bible, I just feel close to God when I'm out in nature. I feel close to God when I'm with people. You know, what John Denver said, you know, one Christmas special, he says, what's Christmas really about? It's not about religion. It doesn't matter what you believe. Religion is people loving people. See, that's when I feel near to God. That can't be the real God. Let me say you one other thing. Do you now see from this perspective that it's quite possible that to just get more religious to start reading the Bible, start to come to church, get more active in Christian things, read Christian books. To just get more religious might be one of the worst things you can possibly do. You, you see why now? You know, it's, I find this all the time. People have a problem in their life. Sometimes even their counselors say, go to church. You're feeling inadequate. You're feeling spiritually empty. Go to church. Get some inspiration. Do you not see, on the basis of what the Bible says, that it might actually be better to be far away from God or right in his bosom, but just to get near him, just to be religious, won't work. In the beginning, if you just try to get religious, if you just try to get, hang out with Jesus, 
That means read about them and try to live a better life and you say, I'm going to swear off this and that practice and I'm going to try to obey the Ten Commandments and read the Sermon on the Mount and pray more and come to church and, and, and do one of these religious activities and help the poor. If you do that, in the very beginning, there'll be a little relief. Your conscience will feel good. But the closer you get to God, just by, the closer you just get to him by hanging out, reading about the Bible, reading about Christianity, you will find that you'll start to feel worse. Because just to get religious you're going to find that you'll have a better idea as you come to the church. If you don't get born again, if you don't get converted, if you don't grasp the gospel, if you just get religious, that's like trying to walk closer to him. And the closer you get, God is a consuming fire. And the closer you get just being religious, it's going to start to burn you. You'll pull back. You'll start to feel inadequate. You keep, you'll hear what the Bible says, how you should be loving one another. You, you'll learn more better what integrity is required of you, what humility is inquired, required of you, what compassion is required of you, you see. Just to get near him, just to hang out with Jesus, he's holy and he's going to make you feel terrible about yourself if you just hang out with him, if you just are religious. It can be one of the worst things you can possibly do is just get a little closer to God. To get a little closer to God is traumatic don't you see? And that could be why some of you, I mean, it's true, it could be why a lot of people, you're going to talk to folks who say, I've tried religion and it just made me feel terrible. That's the Peter of Luke 5. That's the Peter who felt kind of good about the fact that I've got the, be the biggest rabbi in Palestine in my boat. I'm going to be one of his followers. I'm going to be around him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be one of his big cheeses. Religion, morality, doing your best. And when you, at first you feel good, but look what happens. See, Simon Peter felt pretty good about himself. Hey, I'm one of Jesus' right-hand guys. Then what happened? When he saw who Jesus really was. Very often this is the what happens to us, just like this. When we first begin to come to Christ, something in our lives shows us that we're inadequate and that we need him, right? We need God in some general way. So you come to a Bible study. You come to some Christian ministry. You come to Redeemer. You come to church. come to evening service. I don't know. You're just trying to get a little closer. You're trying to get a little bit of a, a, a boost or something. And at first you feel good, but eventually you'll feel terrible. You'll feel just like Peter. You'll say, go away from me because you'll, you'll feel inadequate. You'll say, I can never live up to these standards. The closer you get to him, the more you see what you're supposed to be like. And you say, I can't do it. It'll traumatize you. What changed Peter? What made Peter the Peter of John 21? The thing you've got to realize about John 21, Peter, Peter has not seen Jesus since he denied him three times. Peter has unresolved guilt. Peter is much more aware of his sin in John 21 than he was in Luke 5. Peter's now spent three years with Jesus. He knows all about how he's supposed to live. And he had the tremendous test, his master being crucified, and he denied him, he chickened out, he was a coward. And yet this time, he runs as fast as he can to get right to Jesus' side. Why? What happened? He, he, he understands the gospel. The gospel is, look, you know what was wrong with Old Testament religion? The book of Hebrews is all about this. The people of Israel came near to God. They would get near. God dwelt, his Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. But nobody could go in there because to go in there, they would die because of their sin. 
so they got near. They would get near, but they wouldn't go all the way in. Only the high priest went all the way in, or a few special people like Moses went all the way in and actually saw God face to face, you know, or Jacob got real close. But most of the people were near. But boy, I'll tell you something, as I'm trying to tell you, just to be near but not go all the way in is almost worse than to be far away. But Jesus Christ is the real high priest, and he went into the presence of God, and he laid himself down on that altar, and he was the sacrifice, and he paid for sins. And the minute he died, in the book of Matthew, we're told that the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And you see, the point of the gospel is not, well, you were kind of irreligious, so now get religious. You were kind of far away, so now get near. Oh, no. The point of God is not to get near to God. Getting near to God is always worse than even being far away. What you want to do is you want to get into God. You want to get in Christ. You want to get in him. You want to be at his bosom. And the way to do that is to realize you're not saved by your good deeds, but to see what Jesus did for you and to rest and rely on that completely. That's the only explanation for what the change that happened in Peter's life. Because here's Peter. He needs forgiveness. He feels so sinful because of his denial. And yet, now his sins drive him to Jesus. So here's, here's how we can end. Are you people who are just getting near Jesus or are you going all the way in? Are you relying on your kind of religion and your morality? Or do you understand the gospel that you're saved completely by grace through what Jesus said? Here's the way you can tell. Are you a Luke 5 Peter, or are you a John 21 Peter? In other words, when you feel the worst, when you've just blown it the worst, when you've just done something that you know is wrong, when you feel like the greatest failure, does that sense of failure make you not want to come to church, not want to see Jesus, not want to pray? You feel like, oh my goodness, how can I even go to him? Or does it make you say, I want to get as close to him as possible? You know, jump out of the boat. Doesn't matter. Swim, wade, run, get right to him. Does your sin drive you to him? Does it bring you into fellowship with him or does it completely block your fellowship with him when you feel like a sinner? That'll tell you whether you're a Peter of Luke 21 or a, a Luke 5 or a Peter of John 21. Hey, here's one last thing. I would like to warn my, uh, my leaders, you who are most active in, in a church, and, of course, I know there's people here tonight that are very active in other churches. Fine, I'll talk to you too. You're very active. You go to Bible studies. You lead small groups. You do all these things. Let me tell you, there's something very dangerous. Are you actually, in your personal devotional time, are you actually meeting him? Are you actually connecting with him? Do you feel his love on your heart? In your prayer times, do, do you really sense yourself breaking through? If that's not happening regularly, you're going to find yourself, Bible studies and Christian activities get you near him, but if you're not really connected, if you're not continually renewing that sense of God's grace, you're going to find you're going to get grumpy, irritable, grouchy, like people who are near but not in, people who are not sensing his complete forgiveness and grace, but instead are just be continually being reminded of how they ought to be. You're going to be so irritable if you're just near God and not in. You're going to be so grumpy and so guilty and so anxious if you're just around Jesus but not in. Go in, go in, go in.
You can start by obeying just because he said so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that there's such a big difference between the Peter of Luke 5 and the Peter of Luke 21, uh, John 21. We, we thank you that the difference is in the beginning he saw you as a teacher and an example, and in the end he saw you as a savior and master. Father, uh, help us to understand our own hearts in terms of this text. Help us to see that being near to God is not what we want. Being religious is not what we want, but we want to be at your face, in your bosom, by your side, safe in your son. Show us what this means. Don't let any of us leave until we see what it means. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.